Good evening. You are listening to Community Supported Radio, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Tonight, on the California Report, Mark Albert of KCRB in Santa Rosa speaks with Lily Jamali about what PG&E is doing this season to try to prevent its equipment from sparking another wildfire. Then, after a brief look at local news and regional weather, Paul Emery talks with retired Federal Reserve senior economist Gary Zimmerman about labor and whether or not economic support for the unemployed is slowing the labor market's recovery. We'll close tonight with a commentary shared by Mark Cunaberti. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. As he fights a recall campaign to oust him from office, there's some good news for Governor Gavin Newsom in a new poll that's out today. With more, here's KQED politics reporter Katie Orr. The Berkeley IGS poll finds just 36 percent of California voters support recalling Newsom. That number hasn't changed since the January survey. Forty-nine percent say they'll vote no on the recall. Poll director Mark DiCamillo says interest in the recall is breaking along party lines. More than twice as many Republicans as Democrats or no party preference voters say they are uh, have high interest in the recall. So it's not yet generating a huge amount of interest among the broad electorate. DiCamillo says none of the leading Republicans running to replace Newsom are generating much support. However, 48 percent of Democrats say they'd like to see another Democrat on the ballot in case Newsom is recalled, something Newsom so far opposes. For the California Report, I'm Katie Orr in Sacramento. All schools within the Los Angeles Unified School District have reopened, but the vast majority of students haven't returned to classrooms. The latest numbers from the district show that only 7% of high school students, 12% of middle schoolers, and 30% of kids in elementary school are back in classrooms. Here's LA Unified Superintendent Austin Butner. While we've worked tirelessly to reopen schools, many students aren't yet back in school classrooms. And sadly, as we noted earlier, we see the greatest reluctance for children to be back in schools from families who live in some of the highest needs communities we serve. A recent report from education news website EdSource found that at the end of last month, about 55% of all public school students in the state were still doing only distance learning. Support for the California Report comes from Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. The law firm Perkins Cooey, a trusted legal advisor to innovative companies and industry leaders throughout California and the world. Learn more at perkinscoie.com. And Blue Shield of California, closing the health care gap since 1939. Learn more about their commitment to quality and fair health care for every Californian at news.blueshieldca.com. We're going to turn to utilities and fire. In recent years, Pacific Gas and Electric Company has sparked many of California's deadliest wildfires, including a series of fires that hit the North Bay in 2017. The next year, PG&E caused the Camp Fire, which killed at least 85 people and destroyed the town of Paradise. And last year's Zog Fire in Shasta County killed three people. 
So how well is PG&E preparing for this summer's fire season, which could be the hottest and most dangerous yet? My California Report co-host Lily Jamali talked about that with Mark Albert, a reporter for KRCB in Santa Rosa. Hey, Lily. Hi, Saul. In recent weeks, our California newsroom has created a map of power lines that the California Public Utilities Commission and PG&E think are at great risk of starting a fire. The highest risk areas include the North Bay and the Sierra foothills outside of Sacramento. This map is quite scary to look at, but if you email us at fires at kqed.org, you can see what this means in your area. Let's bring in KRCB's Mark Albert, who drove a portion of what's on the map. And Mark, what were you looking for when you went out? We were looking for violations of the law. As you know, power lines cannot have foliage within four feet of any power line. Trees also cannot be within 10 feet of a power pole, and branches on any tree uh, within 20 feet uh, have to be limbed up eight feet off the ground. Now, PGE is going around addressing these issues, but uh, I have to tell you, it wasn't that hard to find places where the work wasn't getting done. And we should note the law applies to mostly rural areas that are under state and not federal responsibility. Mark, tell us more about what you saw when you went out. Well, I saw uh, oak trees encompassing, just surrounding, hugging uh, power poles. I saw redwood foliage growing right up to um, the power lines, um, branches uh, that may be within the within the area that needs to be cleared, uh, hanging above power lines, uh, and branches not trimmed up eight feet off the ground either in some places. And you and your colleagues reached out to an independent fire expert and to PG&E. What did they tell you when they saw the photos you brought back? Well, the fire expert was very, very concerned. And however, PG&E said there was no problem there. And I was contacted by uh, Cal Fire law enforcement that uh, wanted to know the locations and refused to provide a comment, said they would not tell us when they would be out there to do their inspection or any vegetation removal if they decided to do any. All they said was go out a week from now and see if there's anything different. And if there is, you might be able to assume that maybe there was a hazard. Now, that's not necessarily a journalistic truth there, but uh, I went out on Monday morning and I saw quite a bit of evidence that uh, they had been through and they had cleaned up some of those uh, issues. Wow. So you have PG&E telling you initially this is no problem but later they went out and cleared the vegetation from the line you found. That's correct. And I think what's also really striking is that you were told that this utility pole with the tree wrapped around it was actually exempt from state regulations. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Now, PG&E says that that line or that pole is exempt from the rules because it is either completely sealed or liquid-filled under some sort of definition, under the Public Utilities Commission rules. Now, uh, I wasn't sure what that meant. I contacted the Public Utilities Commission on Thursday and asked them what a liquid-filled power line or power pole looks like because uh, it just looked like an ordinary pole to me. Uh, they said they'd look into it and get back to me. Uh, and again, that was Thursday. I haven't heard from them. 
Thanks, Mark. Again, listeners can get the map that shows the most dangerous parts of PG&E territory by emailing us at fires at kqed.org. That way you can see Mark's photos, and we also want to see your photos. If you're concerned with the safety of power lines in your area, take a picture and email it along with the location where you took it to fires at kqed.org. Saul? Thanks, Lily. That was the California Report's Lily Jamali with KRCB reporter Mark Albert. And that's the California Report for Tuesday, May 11th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thank you so much for listening and talk tomorrow. The Nevada County Coronavirus Dashboard is showing three confirmed cases today for a total of 4,739 since the start of the pandemic. 123 are currently listed as active, and 6 are currently hospitalized. With federal and state water projects saying they'll provide little to no irrigation water to many agricultural customers, farmers must calculate how much food they can grow with their limited supplies. The California Farm Bureau reports today that these water shortages are prompting orchard removals in the Central Valley. One Fresno County farmer says he's pulling out almost 400 acres of almond trees. The lack of water will also mean reduced rice production in the Sacramento Valley. This is the time of year when farmers plant rice, but analysts believe that acreage will be down about 20% because of water restrictions. In some cases, rice farmers will leave land fallow in order to transfer part of their water supply to users in other regions. The Nevada County Grand Jury released a report today entitled Cannabis in Nevada County, a Growing Problem. According to the report, Nevada County has an estimated 3,500 to 4,000 cannabis grow sites, but fewer than 100 of them are legally permitted. Among its many findings, the report states that costs tied to the legal permitting process discourage illegal cannabis growers from complying. The Nevada County Grand Jury recommends that the county streamline the permitting process and reduce the costs to legalize cannabis operations. You can read the report yourself by visiting nccourt.net slash divisions slash gj reports dot shtml or you can find the link on our website under tonight's show notes. For regional weather, in Nevada City and Grass Valley, tonight, clear, with a low around 57. Tomorrow, sunny, with a high near 85. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight, clear, with a low around 34 degrees. Tomorrow will be sunny, with a high near 74. And for our listeners in the Central Valley, Woodland and Sacramento, tonight, clear, with a low around 59. Tomorrow, sunny again with a high near 95. Next, Paul Emery talks with retired Federal Reserve senior economist Gary Zimmerman about labor and whether or not economic support for the unemployed is slowing down our economic recovery. This economic report is sponsored by Rick Kalb, Wealth Management Advisor with Northwestern Mutual since 1983 on Spring Street, Nevada City at rickkalb.com. 
Well, welcome back to KVMR, Gary. And, well, there's not too much doubt about what we're going to talk about, I don't think, today. Talk about the labor markets. And it seems like um, everyone is talking about them. And they were expecting a huge increase in payroll jobs in April after nearly a million jobs were added in March. Um, What happened? (laughs) Paul, how about starting with an easy question? (laughs) Well, uh, you know, after a few weeks of mostly very good news on the U.S. economy's continued recovery from the COVID-2020 recession, uh, you know, we had strong first quarter GDP growth. Um, you know, other indicators were good. You know, and those, those were all things we needed to get out of the COVID recession's deep hole. You know, there was this disappointing jobs number in April. Payroll jobs only went up by 266,000 workers. You know, that's above average, but it's certainly not a million. Well, where do uh, monthly uh, payroll job numbers come from? And that's a really a big question, I think. And, and what do these job numbers tell us about the health of the labor markets and the economy? Well, Paul, the payroll numbers are published by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, or BLS. Um, payroll jobs give us a really sound measure of labor market conditions. You know, we're adding jobs, losing jobs. And so the establishment survey that's used to generate the monthly payroll job numbers is also huge. It you know actually counts about 30% of all the payroll jobs in the U.S. every month and then is used to estimate the, the rest based on a survey of about 700,000 work sites. So, um, you know, and in April, that survey estimated there were roughly 144.3 million payroll jobs nationally. Uh, now, it's important that that is still down 8.2 million from the 152.5 million peak in payroll jobs the month before COVID hit. So so how much weight do you place on each month on the data? That's really a pretty basic question. Uh, do they jump around a lot from month to month or are they pretty pretty consistent? Well, Paul, they're estimates and they do jump around. Um, you know, they are revised and benchmarked regularly to increase their accuracy. Still, we shouldn't put too much emphasis, I think, on any one monthly number uh, because there is a lot of variation or noise in these data from month to month and, you know, even more in the wild post-COVID labor market. So we could look at one measure of the monthly jobs numbers that would be, a, you know, something called the statistical measure called the standard deviation. Over the past 25 years, that was about 200,000 jobs a month in movement um, in this series. And you compare that to the average monthly increase over that, you know, 25-year period, that was only 120,000 jobs monthly increase. So, uh, you know, there is a lot of variance. So let's let's take a look at the trends, Um, not just any preliminary one-month figure. Well, were the forecasters too optimistic? There's a question for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's right. Um, you know, it seems like they've been too optimistic, probably because the preliminary March numbers uh, were so high. Um, you had the vaccination numbers rising uh, dramatically, you know, fewer restrictions. Um, and, you know, you can continued monetary policy um support and government relief support that, you know, then you've got the fast GDP numbers, you know, all of those seemed reasonable for, um, you know, adding in, you know, something like a, <laughs> a, a strong April job number. Okay. Now, as a reaction to this, three Republican governors um, are ending the $300 a week relief supplement for unemployed workers. Uh, they say it's keeping workers from taking jobs. Uh, what's your view on that? 
<laughs> okay, Bob. Well, that's a loaded question. Um, well, I think there are some really important factors going on here that, uh, in addition to that, that possibility. Uh, for example, some workers may have COVID. Um, many kids aren't back in school. Daycare is still a challenge for many parents. So, so many workers may find it difficult to return even now, even with you know government support in place. And you know, you know, some sectors were also hit by supply shortages and. Uh, in April, that probably slowed job growth in April as well. So a number of things are you know, going on, not just that. Uh, one more question, Gary. Is there strong economic evidence indicating that support for the unemployed is causing weakness in the labor market? <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, Paul, there is a considerable amount of economic analysis, at least preliminary, has been done. And it doesn't support the assertion that the continued relief support for the unemployed is causing or seriously slowing the labor market recovery. Uh, first, some of the, you know, in the April numbers, for example, some of the fastest job growth in April was in low-paying industries where the unemployed workers would have been getting the $300 a month uh, supplement you know, before they took the jobs. Um, you know, you, there are a number of recent studies that looked at last year's with the $600 a week unemployment supplement. And, you know, the findings there were pretty unanimous that there was little or no impact of, of, of that $600 on workers' decisions. You know, and, and it may be in large part because, you know, the income from a job is, is much more stable. It's not just temporary unemployment that's going to go away, in this case, in, in September. And finally, there's an April Census Bureau survey where the unemployed indicated why they weren't working. And, a, a, you know, this one, I think, is really telling. You know, more than 4.2 million people said they weren't working because they're concerned about getting or spreading the virus. Nearly two and a half million said they had coronavirus symptoms or were caring for somebody who did. You know, so these are huge numbers. And another 6.8 million said they were caring for children who were not in school or daycare. So there are pretty important other reasons going on here. Thank you, Gary. I look forward to our next chat. You're welcome, Paul. Thank you. Gary Zimmerman is a retired senior economist for the San Francisco Reserve in San Francisco and currently is a visiting professor at the Vienna University of Economics and Business in Austria, where he teaches courses in economics and finance. You can listen to an extended version of Paul's interview with Gary Zimmerman on our website or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, we close with a commentary shared by Mark Cunaberti. Welcome to another edition of Money Matters. My name is Mark Cunaberti. The market sold off hard on May 4th, reportedly brought about by Secretary Treasury Janet Yellen, who was the former Federal Reserve Chief from 2014 to 2018. Yellen made some comments during an economic seminar that interest rates may have to rise to cool off potential overheating in the economy. She said, quote, it may be that interest rates will have to rise somewhat to make sure that our economy doesn't overheat even though the additional spending is relatively small relative to the size of the economy, she said, it could cause some very modest increase in interest rates. That was it. That's all she said, and the market sold off hard. An overheated economy is a nice way of saying inflation. 
Note the comment on comparative stimulus spending being, quote, relatively small compared to the economy, unquote. Current estimates put U.S. spending on COVID-19 programs north of $6 trillion. On the table is another $4 trillion in proposed infrastructure spending by Washington, that by CNBC on May 5th, with the U.S. economy yielding a GDP somewhere in the area of $21 trillion. Stimulus spending in the past 12 months amounts to about one-third of GDP. If the infrastructure plan is approved, stimulus spending could be closer to 50% of GDP. Many conservative and liberal economists alike categorize this percentage as unprecedented. Indeed, a percentage that large dwarfs all previous government spending programs. Astute investors and past listeners and readers of Money Matters know I always say that where government spending goes, so goes inflation. Yellen seems to be acknowledging that this possibility and warning a preemptive strike on inflation with higher rates may be necessary. Higher interest rates tend to cool inflation by making money much more expensive to borrow for both businesses and individuals. With the May 4th comment, markets apparently were taken aback and the majority of sectors sold off hard. Not but a few days later, Yellen, who must have been read the riot act by somebody about those comments, backpedaled on the statement, deferring to, quote, I don't think there's going to be an inflationary problem, and if there is, the feds will be counted on to address it, unquote. Yellen likely realized she had an open-mouth insert-foot moment when markets tanked shortly after her initial statement, not wanting to let markets fester on the statement. Her immediate recantation did not go unnoticed by financial columnists, including this one. What Yellen and other monetary experts know is that trillions in stimulus money will likely lead to inflationary pressures, and warning that rates may rise to combat them is prudent Fed-speak. Markets don't like surprises, and forewarning policy moves is an attempt to avoid an unexpected rate increase that might indeed cause a market panic. Historical precedent reveals many such examples. Now the concern is, since the warning alone caused a sudden drop in markets, the actual rate increase may even cause a worse problem. Many argue that with such sensitive reactions to every little thing the Fed says, the markets appear to be perched on a precipice of anticipation, and not in a good way. If true, the Feds may have painted themselves into a very concerning corner. With the government printing trillions of COVID relief and infrastructure dollars, inflation may already be baked into the proverbial economic cake. Stock markets, however, have yet to connect the dots that inflation come this way and, with it, mandated interest rate increases. Markets hate rising interest rates as rate increases choke off the available dollars that would go normally into stocks. With the markets apparently now sensitive to just the mention of such policy moves, when rates actually do occur, markets may react in an even more highly unpleasant manner. And that's it for today's Money Matters. The views expressed are my opinions only and may not reflect those of this station its staff, management, or underwriters. This newscast is not meant as investment advice. Consult a qualified professional before making any investment decisions and do your own research before investing. Our website is moneymanagementradio.com where everything is free. Our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. I hold California Insurance License OL34249 and am a Medicare agent approved in the state of California. My name is Mark Cunaberti. Thanks for listening.
that does it for tonight, Tuesday, May 11th, 2021. You can listen to this and previous newscasts again, including longer versions of our interviews, on our website, kvmr.org. We get support from Carmen's Garden and Greenhouse, locally owned since 2012 on Loma Rica Drive, Grass Valley. Stocking greenhouse frames, coverings, and components, down-to-earth amendments, and IPM products. Open Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. Carmen'sGarden.com Stick around, Food Sleuth is next. This week, host and registered dietitian Melinda Hemmelgarn interviews Dr. Brian Wygand about alternative meat products, including those grown in laboratories. And at 7 p.m., we bring you Democracy Now! Thanks very much for listening. I'm Claudio Mendonça. Have a nice evening, and I'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.